This show contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. There's a video floating around on the internet. It's one of those camcorder videos that show the time and date on the screen. So assuming the date on the recorder was set right, it's from the summer of 1996. The video is grainy and takes place in what seems to be a mansion. There's this huge spiral staircase, a giant kitchen in the background, a black baby grand piano. Don King is there. It seems like it's his house. How are you? Great to see you guys. Welcome. Okay. And he's talking through an interpreter to these two huge Ukrainian dudes, Vitaly and Vladimir Klitschko. Vladimir had either just won or was just about to win the Olympic gold medal for boxing. Vitaly had finished second the year before at the World Championships. I'm very excited, very pleased, very honored to have these guys to come and join me in shocking the world. This was right before Mike Tyson lost the first of his two fights versus Evander Holyfield. And maybe Don could see the writing on the wall. Or maybe he was just doing what he could to keep control over the heavyweight division. And I mean, Don lays it on thick. We're gonna make money here all over the world. Today, team, tomorrow, the world. Before they head out, Don insists the Klitschko's and the other dudes in their entourage stick around to listen to him play his piano a little. He walks across the room from them and sits down at the keys. And the thing is, he sounds really, really good. While the five men stand across the room watching, Don rocks from side to side like a concert pianist. But the minute one of the men comes over to see whether Don's fingers are the ones doing the playing, Don shoots up and the music stops. Now, I'm not going to be the one to say that Don King can't play the piano like a classically trained musician. But I will at least mention the possibility that Don's got himself one of those player pianos that, you know, plays the music for you. Boxing journalist Doug Fisher says the Klitschko's could see right through Don. If not about the piano, then maybe about what he could do for their careers. These guys came from humble beginnings. But they weren't just streetwise, they were book smart as well. Like these are college grads, these guys have PhDs, real sharp dudes. They speak like four and five languages or whatever. And Don's reputation was pretty well known by now. They kind of figured it out like, yeah, Don, you're promising a lot. And you know what? We don't think you can deliver. Within a year, Tyson would lose to Holyfield, then bite his ear in the rematch. Mike would lose his license and then sue Don for $100 million. And Don King would begin his long, slow walk down from the top of the boxing mountaintop as the boxing world gradually began to figure out maybe it didn't need or want Don King anymore. I'm Panama Jackson, and from something else, this is Power, Don King. Today's episode, Only in America. 
Don King had counted on Mike Tyson being a moneymaker that would last for years. But even after Don and Mike split for good, it wasn't like Don just gave up. Don still has a foothold in the heavyweight division and with the networks. In granting Evander Holyfield a shot at Mike Tyson, Don made sure that Holyfield signed an exclusive contract. The problem is that Evander Holyfield was, um, he was old, <laughs> you know? He was, he was long in the tooth, and he was never a dominant champion the way Mike Tyson or Larry Holmes was. In 1999, Don set up a championship fight between Holyfield and Lennox Lewis. That fight took place at Madison Square Garden. It was a big fight. Did over a million pay-per-view buys. It was big business. Lewis lands the uppercut for the first time in the fight and lands again as Holyfield tries to come inside. One minute to go in the prophecy. Most people watching thought that Lewis ran away with it. Final punch stat numbers are overwhelmingly one-sided. Lewis landing 218 more blows, more than doubling Holyfield's landed punch number and nearly doubling his output. But when the scorecards came in, it was a draw. Even a draw, the decision is even a draw. Both champions retain their belts. There's no way Holyfield won that fight. It was so egregiously bad. And one of the judges actually scored the fight for Holyfield. And that judge, it was proven to have some kind of ties to Don King and made the sports world, like the sports writers, come after King so hardcore. And his reputation was already bad. Don and the judge got called before the New York State Senate, but no legal action was ever taken against them. When Lewis and Holyfield fought a rematch, it actually was kind of close. But Lennox Lewis, he won on the official scorecards. And even people who thought maybe the fight could have been a draw they didn't say that because they were like, no, this is justice. Lennox Lewis was screwed so bad in that first fight, he deserves to have the heavyweight titles. And since Don King is the promoter of Evander Holyfield, they were like, we're glad you lost Evander because you're a Don King fighter and we want Don King out of boxing. Doug says Don tried to shake it off and just keep moving forward, but his options were more and more limited. He's playing chess, and he still wants to be involved in the heavyweight division, but he doesn't control Lennox Lewis, and he doesn't control the Klitschko brothers, and he still had his relationship with the sanctioning organizations. But I will say, he didn't have power pieces. He didn't have a queen or a rook or a knight. He had pawns. One of those pawns was a heavyweight named Haseen Rahman, who knocked out Lennox Lewis and managed to hold the heavyweight title for a hot second. But then... Right after Don signed him, Rockman turned right around and lost to Lewis in the rematch. Doug says at the press conference after that fight, Don lost his shit, which was a thing he pretty much never let himself do if there were cameras rolling. I've seen Don flip out on people in private, and occasionally, occasionally something would happen where he was upset and he would let that side of him slip out in front of people. But that day, Don went off. Lennox Lewis was with a rival promotional company, Main Events, and the attorney for Main Events, I don't know why he got on the mic, but before Lennox Lewis entered the media center, the attorney, a guy named Pat English said, ladies and gentlemen, 
the real heavyweight champion of the world, Lennox Lewis, and King raced over. I thought he was gonna punch him, but he swiped the microphone from his hands and said, give me that damn microphone, man. Everyone like suddenly looks up to the podium and then King looks back and he says, can you believe this white slave master? You don't have shit to do with this promotion. This was my promotion. All you did was make life difficult for me all week. And I think he called him an MF. And I could see the attorney was like, he cringed like, oh shit. Now, even though Don was losing his grip on the heavyweight division, he did still have deals with other fighters who had signed with him over the years. But Doug says Don just didn't value them the way he did the Tysons and the Holyfields of the world. He wasn't paying attention to his star fighters in the lighter weight classes. And um, some of them were sort of prima donnas, you know, and others, they had legitimate gripes. They were like, hey, what about my career? You should be focusing on me. And that wasn't happening. Everything that Don had built over decades in boxing just seemed to be slipping away from him. There was a sense of desperation. There was a sense of, of the kingdom kind of crumbling. By this point, Don was in his 70s. And around this time, one of the people that happened into his orbit was a guy named Rick Glazer. I'm an international agent, broker, consultant in the professional boxing business for 31 years. I provide supplemental services to promoters, television networks, managers, attorneys, anybody who will take my advice or my professional services that would like to pay me. Rick says that in the 2000s, when Don started working with him, Don was still running his business the way he had always run it, with every decision going through Don. I mean, Don didn't have a staff. The best staff he had, and they were great lawyers, but that, that's you can't run a boxing business just on lawyers. You gotta have boxing people. I was the only one. And year after year, more fighters left Don or wouldn't even sign with him in the first place. By the mid-2000s, the last great fighter Don had under contract was Roy Jones Jr. But then, in 2008, Roy Jones Jr. decided that he would be better off without Don. He bought himself out of the deal for millions to go out on his own. As in, Roy Jones Jr. was willing to spend his own money just to get away from Don. Damn. It was all downhill from 2008. That was the dividing line right there when he didn't have a star after that. And Rick says, where it used to be that you could get an HBO or Showtime to give you a good price for a one-off night of fights, now the networks mostly wanted to sign long-term deals with promoters. And none of them signed a long-term deal with Don because he didn't have the talent anymore to have them be interested. Rick did suggest that maybe Don should just do things on a smaller scale. Maybe start his own pay-per-view network and sell rights in different countries. And bring in, you know, five, six, seven hundred and fifty thousand in revenues. And he didn't want to do that. He's used to dealing with millions of dollars. Now he's on would only be dealing with hundreds of thousands. And that's a slap in the face. Instead, says Doug Fisher, Don just kept slipping and slipping and slipping. In the 2000s, people were saying like, oh gosh, this Don King fight card is a sad joke. And they were just throwing shade at King. And beyond that, at some point, the frequency of those, those Don King produced events was less and less. It would be like a year between these cards and then a couple years between these cards. But Don wouldn't walk away. Especially for longtime fans or longtime 
members of the media who have been around longer than me and they remember the glory years. They're like, my gosh, this guy used to be known for the pageantry, for the production value. And now look at this. There's no energy whatsoever. It seems like nobody wants to be there. And it's certainly not the top talent. Rick Glazer says Don just never really adjusted to the new reality. I have a coined expression about fighters when they're not what they were. They're on the downside because, you know, boxing is very degenerative uh, physically and mentally. And uh, my expression is on the back nine heading towards the clubhouse. Well, some of the people in the business started using my line about Don. He should be in the clubhouse retired. But for all that, Don wasn't done with boxing. And in a weird way, boxing really wasn't done with Don either. That's after the break. Don King may have lost his power over boxing, but when you look at the sport from 10,000 feet up, he's still everywhere. Like, everything that has happened in boxing in the last two decades, in one way or another, it's all basically in reaction to Don King. Now, some of these things are obvious. For example, all the bad press that Don got for ripping off boxers, eventually that got the attention of Congress. In 2000, they passed the Muhammad Ali Boxing Reform Act. Boxing journalist Radio Rahim says the law was designed to protect professional fighters from all the shady stuff that promoters and managers had been pulling on them for decades. The business of boxing promotion was so dirty at times that we couldn't look away from what this conflict of interest had the potential to do to people who climbed through those ropes and put their lives on the line and often ended up with nothing in their pocket for their efforts, while their promoters and managers and agents lived high on the hog and the good life for the rest of their years. Doug Fisher thinks the lawmakers who wrote the act had one particular person in mind. A lot of the the Muhammad Ali act was a direct result of all these Don King horror stories. I mean, it did sometimes look like they had just flipped through Don's old playbook and started crossing things out. A lot of what the Muhammad Ali act addressed was in response to Don King kind of having an in-house manager in his son, Carl, and kind of forcing fighters to go with that manager or, you know, having a training facility that he pressured you to train at and then would deduct those training fees from the fighter's purse. The law put all these limits on the kinds of contracts promoters could try to get boxers to sign and require promoters to be more upfront with the fighters about the money coming in from their fights. And Doug says it wasn't just the laws that changed. The business changed, too. Again, basically in reaction to how much power promoters like Don managed to get a hold of. So there was also this changing tide of starfighter awareness where they kind of recognized the the leverage they wielded in the sport and they wanted more agency and they wanted free agency. But beyond free agency, they actually wanted to be their own promoter. They actually wanted to make money on that side as well. Some boxers were like, I'm already the champion of my weight class. Everybody's going to pay to watch my next fight. Maybe I don't need to give 25% of what I make to Don King or Bob Arum or whatever other promoter. And we saw that in the 2000s with uh, Oscar De La Hoya did it first, and he was the most successful with it. But other star fighters did so as well. Any fighter that had a huge fan base and was used to making a lot of money and had made a lot of money 
and had the resources to get a promoter's license and, and form a staff underneath him. And remember those two giant Ukrainian dudes Don pretended to play the piano for? Same thing. And then the Klitschko brothers in the mid-2000s formed their own promotional company, K2 Promotions. And so it was kind of like things had changed. The big stars were realizing that they didn't need promoters, which left guys like Don King kind of out in the cold. But honestly, even if Don had managed to stay in control of things, it's not entirely clear he could ever have been as successful as he was in the 80s and 90s when he was at his peak. Boxing, and especially the heavyweight division, had been in kind of a pop cultural freefall for years, which arguably some of Don's missteps probably had something to do with. And we know folks were still interested in watching people beat the shit out of each other because there was still a form of fighting they were willing to pay good money for. They're starting to open up. Beator looking for the big left hand. The Ultimate Fighting Championship, or the UFC, launched in the 90s. But by the 2000s, it had taken over. In 2006, the UFC made over $200 million from pay-per-view sales, which was more than professional wrestling or boxing made that year. And here's where it gets even weirder. If Don was partly responsible for boxing slide, he might also have been at least partly responsible for UFC's rise. Doug says he sees all kinds of parallels between Don's approach to boxing and the approach of Dana White, the guy behind the UFC. I mean, the thing about Don King and him being a pathological control freak, he's kind of like Dana White with the UFC. And the UFC does very well as far as a sport because it's organized like a league. Dana White controls everything. Here's Dana White on a podcast explaining his approach. So I have 550 fighters under contract, men and women. Okay, I have 300 employees that I have to deal with every day. You have to be a leader and you have to get people to believe as you believe and to want the the dream as bad as you want the dream. Culture writer Michael Harriet says White's strategy was like when Don King tried to sign all the best boxers in the heavyweight divisions, but on steroids. What is Dana White if not a white Don King? You know, the whole MMA exists basically off the Don King model. And the UFC isn't covered by the Muhammad Ali Act. So Dana White can do all kinds of things boxing promoters can't do anymore. He literally signs them to exclusive contracts and you can't fight in mixed martial arts unless you're fighting exclusively for Dana White. And we don't even question it because Don King was doing it for years. Now, it's not like boxing went away in the last two decades. There were still all these great fighters. Floyd Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao, Canelo Alvarez. But whether it was everything we learned about how bad concussions were for you, or fewer great athletes choosing boxing over football or basketball or MMA, or changing tastes, whatever it was, boxing just got less important to the culture. And the reasons people seem to have for tuning into boxing started to be less about seeing athletes performing at the peak of their abilities and more about the spectacle of it all. The parts of boxing that Don King spent so much effort building up, you know, the pageantry of dudes rolling in in their satin robes, under the flashing lights and pounding beats, the hyped up press conferences, and those are all still there, even if the boxing itself is meh. We are in this era where somebody who's not even a boxer, but is 
uh, I guess they're calling them content creators now. I call him a YouTuber, YouTube star, but somebody like Jake Paul, who's a bit of an athlete, but he can fight non-boxers. He's only had five fights, but I've watched it. And he's a fighter, he's a star with agency. Like his first fight, I think it was on DAZN. He wasn't even the main event. And he fought another YouTuber and knocked the dude out in one round. After that, Paul fought former NBA point guard, Nate Robinson. And this time, he's the co-promoter of the bout of record. And he's the main event. And then in his next fight, he's on Showtime, pay-per-view. Showtime signed him to a three-fight deal. Which then started this whole thing where former basketball players or dudes from the NFL would get a bunch of money to jump in the ring against each other. So we're kind of in this strange era, and it's, I don't i don't know how it plays out. For purists like Rick Glazer, all this Jake Paul fighting a point guard stuff is whack. That's not boxing. That's entertainment. That borders on WWE and all that other stuff. That's not boxing. Boxing is the best fighting the best. The champions fighting champions, champions fighting number one contenders, champions fighting former champions. That's what boxing's about. Fighters challenging themselves. That's happy horseshit boxing. Maybe Rick's right, but as a business proposition, those fights are making money. Even if it's just two dudes we're curious to see fight each other. And it's hard not to see Don King all over this too. After all, what's more Don King than realizing there are all kinds of ways to make a dollar from two men going at it in the ring? So all right, last episode of the show, we should be thinking about the big picture. Like what is Don King's legacy? But I'm gonna tell you, that's one of those questions that gets weirder and weirder the longer you sit with it. I mean, the simplest answer to that question is about the effect he had on boxing. You know, all the stuff we just went through before. This is Radio Raheem. Don King is a pioneer. You can't deny his wide breadth of influence and success and his presence at pivotal and iconic moments in the sport. You simply can't take that from him. But also, it matters that this was a black dude in this incredibly white world of boxing promotion. It was impossible, or at least thought to be impossible, for a black man to ascend in a sport, even boxing, to the heights that Don King did, especially at the time he did. And he must be credited with being able to accomplish that. Muhammad Ali biographer Mike Ezra is like, just think about what Don King came from. It's hard to call anything a meritocracy. There's always outside forces that influence who's gonna succeed and who's not. But Don King's model comes close. He came out of prison with no connection to the sport and willed himself into it through an ability to read people in the time period. Michael Harriet says people looked up to Don because he wasn't just getting his own. He was setting up all these boxers to get theirs too. And so I think black people admire that. For a person to come from where Don King came from and to achieve the power and the money and the notoriety, not just for himself, but for other black people, is a thing that we look at with admiration. Yeah, much respect. 
But Don's legacy, it's got some other elements to it too. The caveat to that, the stain on that, is that when he brought black fighters along who also couldn't get a fair shake, when negotiating contracts, when being promoted by white promoters, when he had an opportunity to protect those fighters from that style of representation, too many times he failed in that obligation, really. It's so easy to get pulled too far in one direction or the other with Don. Like, he was a crook who ripped off Mike Tyson and Tim Witherspoon. Unless you want to make the argument that Don made fighters more money than they ever would have gotten without him. Or, Don was this important black first, with all the unfair burdens that puts on a person. Unless you want to say Don was actually out there taking advantage of black men, not lifting them up. I'm telling you, it's hard. He is not quite the charlatan that some people would characterize him as. It's not 100% that. And he's also not quite the ally that he presents himself to be, no matter who he's talking to. And maybe it's just a mistake to start demanding clean answers with someone like Don. At the end of the day, Don was a businessman. An incredibly, incredibly successful businessman who brought himself up from selling bags of peanuts in Cleveland to selling the biggest fights the world had ever seen. Don didn't set out to transform boxing. I mean, what did he say to Lloyd Price right after Don got out of prison? Make me big. That's what Don set out to do. And he did that. So maybe we just have to judge him on his own terms. Don King may be accused of screwing over fighters a lot, but nobody ever accused Don King of screwing over any customer. You always felt when you watched the Don King card or pay-per-view that you got your money's worth. Because whatever people might have said they felt about Don, there were millions and millions of ways in which they told a very different story. You might be in the crowd hating Don King, but at the same time, you have to recognize that you're giving him your money, in a sense. And that speaks louder than any feelings you might have. Without Don King, we wouldn't have the rumble in the jungle or gotten to see Muhammad Ali perform on the kind of stage that only Don King could provide. We wouldn't have had the spectacular show that was Mike Tyson or the spectacular car crash that was Mike Tyson. Or anyway, it would have been a different show in a different car crash. Hell, we wouldn't have even gotten the show that was Don King. All that, my magic lies and my people ties, when you use the vernacular of the ghetto to make an exciting extravaganza extemporaneously. Like, maybe there's some world where you replace Don King with the guy who was more invested in the boxers he promoted as people and less as assets. Or one who was just a different kind of showman. Or had a different dream about what sports and entertainment and business could be. But that world, that's not the world we actually live in. Who knows what it would have been like if it had been somebody else, but it wasn't. It was him. If it had gone some other way, but it didn't, it went the way it went because it was him. Don is 90 years old now. He's no longer flying around the globe convincing dictators to put up millions of dollars for a boxing match. He's not on HBO or Showtime promoting fights for the heavyweight championship of the world. But Don's not going quietly either. In January, Don promoted a fight between Trevor Bryan and Jonathan Guidry in Warren, Ohio. Before the fight, the mayor of Warren issued a proclamation declaring January 26, 2022, Don King Day. But it began as a humble plea to help save 
of Cleveland Hospital in 1972. As the mayor speaks, Don stands next to the podium, blinged out with a diamond necklace in the shape of an American flag, waving a handful of actual flags. Don King, who coined the phrase, only in America. He lives it, he reads it, he believes it. It is part of his soul. Now look, I don't think Don's promoting this fight so he can get some award. And I don't think he's doing it for his legacy either. I think Don's doing it because at some point, he found the place in the universe made in exactly his shape and size. He got right up in there and just decided he was going to spend the rest of his life fighting like hell to stay there. Don did as much press as he could in the days leading up to the fight. His hair is a little thinner now, and he doesn't stand quite as tall as he once did. But when the camera lights came on and the microphones appeared, Don did what Don has always done. He leaned in, his eyes lit up, and Don just started talking. Age is just a number. It's just a number. You got to feel it, you got to live it, you got to breathe it, and then you have to die with it. So I'm here, and I'm here to stay because I'm a Churchillian. For boxing, that's been true for 50 years and counting. This is excitement. This is not a comeback. I ain't never left. All right, y'all, that's our show. But we have a little something-something on the way if you want more of our man Don. Be sure to check out two more episodes dropping on May 2nd and May 9th. And stay tuned to this feed for more seasons of Power. And check out season one, The Maxwells, and season two, Hugh Hefner, if you haven't already. Thanks so much for listening to Power, Don King. Now, for the last time, here are the amazing folks who made it. Power, Don King is a Something Else production. It's hosted by me, Panama Jackson. The series producer is Tiffany Walker. Our associate producers are Kyra Asabe Bonsu and India Whitkin. Mixing and sound design from Evan Arnett and Will Short at Spoke Media. Keith Romer is our editor. Fact checking by Natsumi Ajasaka and production management by Jennifer Mystery. Legal by Kathleen Farley for Davis Wright Tremaine. Our consulting producer is Rady Rahim. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Our theme song is by Nolan Schneider. Special thanks to Lily Hambly, Pallavi Kotumasu, Mia Warren, Caroline Guest, Grant Irving, and Steve Ackerman. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps new listeners find the show. <laughs>